Father, this morning we do praise you and do desire to bow down before you and worship you and give you the worship, the feeble worship that we can offer to you. You deserve far more than what we can give, and we praise you for that. Praise you for your awesomeness. Praise you for your word, and we desire that it would come alive to us today, that we would understand and not only understand, but be able to apply and utilize it as we interact with a lost world that desperately needs you. So we just commit this time to you, asking that you would work amongst us. And if there be anything that hinders us from grasping the total effect that you have for us in your word this morning, that uh, we would confess any sin that would be hindering us, that we would be fully in fellowship with you and your spirit would enlighten us. So we just pray these things in Jesus' name. This morning I'm going to do something a little different than what we normally do. I'm going to try to cover 57 verses. Can you imagine that? No. No. All right. Miracles do happen. If you read the Bible, you'll see that uh, quite common in Scripture, miracles, particularly in the ministry of Christ. So... You may be a witness to a miracle today. So we're going to look at chapters 3, 21 through 5, 21. And if you're diligent, count the verses. There's 57 in there. And the reason for this, I'm just going to give you an introduction to this whole concept, this doctrine of justification. And you can add justification by faith. And in a lot of even evangelical churches, there is somewhat of a confusion, at least slight. And we want to be clear, just as we've been very clear on the nature and place of mankind, as we've just completed the section on condemnation. So I want to give you an introduction to justification just to get us into it and also give you kind of an overview of the entire passage. The section in the book of Romans dealing with justification runs from 321 to 521, or the end of 5, and I've got a couple of charts. Some of you like those charts, so I'll flash some of them. Obviously, to the church at Rome, many house churches. In fact, a lot of the house churches in the first century in Rome were even smaller than our group. They met in homes, obviously. So this is a letter that Paul writes to the Romans. We've talked a lot about that. Just the broader outline, we've looked at an introduction. We're in that major section of the book of Romans where the main emphasis of the whole book is righteousness. That's the key word. We've defined it. We've looked at it. We've seen it in several contexts already. The fact that Righteousness is available to human beings. God's very own righteousness that he bestows on mankind. So righteousness is provided. But before we can even realize that we have a need for it, Paul spends probably one of the longest subsections in the book of Romans to convince the reader who are believers. Remember, we've been stressing This book is not written to an unbelieving audience. It's written to a church, to believers, so that they may be grounded and clear in understanding the situation of all of mankind. 
We stand condemned before a holy God. We spent lots of time dealing with that. How many years? Can't remember. Beginning of verse 18 through the end of verse 20 of chapter 3. So we've looked at that section. And that leads into the solution to man's dilemma, man's condition of condemnation. Again, we've been stressing throughout. Paul uses legal terms in the book of Romans. Justification is another legal term. We'll talk about that. We'll define it carefully. I'll give you a little brief definition today, but we'll look at it in some detail. So that's the section we're looking at. This is a very, very important section. In fact, several people might point out that Romans, the whole book, is the heart of the entire Bible. And if it's the heart of the entire Bible, you can expect that it is also the heart of the New Testament. In fact, one writer says that uh, chapters 3, 21 through 26, the first paragraph, you might say, in this section is, in fact, the heart of Romans. So we're at the very center of what God has revealed throughout Scripture. Now, unfortunately, this is not an easy passage to look at, so it'll take us some time to kind of unravel it. And I put it again on a little chart to help us to visualize how all the little pieces fit together. But it is, in fact, and I think this is an accurate statement, the heart of all of Romans. The solution to the dilemma And more than a dilemma, the solution to the condemnation of mankind. Got that? So very important. So it's worthy of not only an introduction to the whole section, but an introduction to this portion itself. And if we have time, we'll get into verse 21. S.L. Johnson, a scholar, says, If Romans is a little Bible, and it is, then 3, 21 through 26 is a little Romans. So it's the heart. It's the essence. Everything else kind of revolves around this passage that we'll spend probably the rest of the semester in. There's so much in there, and there's a lot of theological terms that are not easily understood. Well, I think they're easily understood, but they're not defined, they're not stressed, they're not explained, and we want to make sure that we do. So that's what we're going to do. Calvin even said, there is not probably in the whole Bible a passage which sets forth more profoundly the righteousness of God in Christ than this passage that we're going to look at, 21 through 26. And yet so short that the statement seems scarcely to have begun when all is said... Within so few lines are the most decisive thoughts concentrated. And it is very concentrated. There's lots in here. That's why we'll have to spend plenty of time on it. He goes on. It is really, as Vitringa, an old scholar, it is really, as Vitringa has said, the brief summary of divine wisdom. In other words, it's at the heart of the divine wisdom that's been revealed to us. So a very, very important passage. Again, our outline beginning with justification, it has five parts. 
and we're only going to look at the first part in the next few weeks. But what I want you to have is the context of the whole passage so that you can put it into its proper context. So we'll look at verses 21 through 26, where this is essentially the provision that God has made for mankind that is the solution to the problem that he has laid out in terms of man's condemnation. And if we don't realize and understand our need, and if we we don't communicate to the unbeliever their need, then uh, they have no sense of why they have to look at the solution. So people have to be convinced. So the gospel message, the hardest part of it to share is to communicate to the unbeliever that they are lost. And I gave you several other words that the Bible describes. What did we say? Anyone remember some of those words? Pardon me? Deadness, Ephesians 2. What else? Lots of words. Spiritual deadness. Blindness. Blindness. Hopeless. Paul uses condemnation. Lost. (laughs) Wicked. Evil. Depraved. Remember, we've looked at that whole concept of total depravity last several weeks at the end of our little uh, portion of the last segment. So lots of terms. So there's a provision to overturn that. And the provision must come from God because of the concept of depravity, lostness, blindness, deadness. There's nothing that we can do. So we need to communicate that to the unbeliever. He cannot do anything. The nature of depravity is such that we want to do something. In other words, I have to do something to reach God. And there is nothing. In fact, our righteousness is like what? Filthy rags. Menstrual rags, actually. So there's nothing that we can do. The unbeliever needs to come to that realization before he's ready to accept what God has provided. And that provision is explained theologically in some detail with all of the aspects. It's not easy because, remember, this is written to the believer. And by the time that you get to this passage, you already understand some of the terms that he's going to use. We'll see some of that in a moment. Secondly, after he lays out in one paragraph that is composed of one sentence, kind of a complicated sentence, we'll have to break it down, now he's going to kind of expand upon it, and he's going to give some of the implications of this concept of justification that is provided through Jesus Christ, received by faith to those that stand that are sinners that are separate from God. There are some implications, and the primary implication there, he's going to deal with this idea of works. In other words, it's apart from works. There's nothing you can do. He's already emphasized that, so he's bringing it out again in terms of there's nothing that we can do to receive that provision that God has has made. So, the implications... There's no personal merit, if you can follow the outline, chapter 3, verses 3 through 27 and 28. And the only way, the exclusiveness of justification on your outline, that's the only way, is through what God has provided. And 
Thirdly, this is something that is not foreign to the Old Testament, not foreign to the Mosaic Covenant, not foreign to the law. In other words, the law actually exposes this concept. Unfortunately, most people have missed it, and the nation of Israel missed it. So these are some of the implications. Thirdly, he gives an Old Testament example. Remember, half of the church, or some of the churches in Rome, were made up of Jewish people, people that had come out of Judaism, that had trusted in Jesus Christ. So they needed to know that this is not a doctrine that is divorced from the scriptures, and for them the scriptures were the Old Testament. Most of the New Testament had not been written yet. Book of Romans is one of the books that Paul writes as a New Testament document. So they needed to know, is this something that you can find in the Old Testament? And it goes all the way back to the very first Jew, if you will, the man that God used to bring about the entire nation of Israel. He came into a relationship with God by faith and faith alone. So the doctrine of justification by faith goes back all the way to Genesis 15. The covenant that God entered into with Abraham. So he's going to use Abraham as a, as an illustration. He's going to also weave David into that. In other words, David also is related to this concept of justification by faith. So it's not something that is foreign. And by the way, I've said several times, there's very little in the New Testament that is new, if you will. Virtually everything that you find in the New Testament, you can find in the Old Testament. You have it in seed form, not fully developed. For example, the doctrine of the Trinity is something that you can find in the Old Testament. It's not explicit, it's not clear, and it's not till you come to the realization that there's this man named Jesus that is fully God and also fully human, but now you have, well, what about God in heaven? What about God the Father? So the church had to wrestle. In fact, it took the church about 300 years to develop this concept in the way that we understand it today, this doctrine of the Trinity. But this is not a new doctrine. All you have to do is go to the second word in the Hebrew text. And already you have allowance made for the doctrine of the Trinity. Bereshit, Elohim, Elohim is what? Plural. And the verb is what? Contrary to typical grammar. You would expect plural verb if you have a plural noun, and it's singular. So it's looking at a plural plurality in the Godhead. It's looking at the plurality in the Godhead, yet... It's looking at God as one, as singular. So you have it right at the very beginning, this concept of plurality, yet one oneness. And and you even have the Spirit of God in verse 2. So this doctrine of the Trinity that's not explicit in the Old Testament comes together in the New. So also the doctrine of justification by faith. It even precedes, you would say, Abraham, but that's the example that Paul uses. The very first person that God called to himself that would produce the nation of Israel came into a saving relationship by faith and by faith alone. So that's the Old Testament example. 
And then he's going to, in chapter 5, lay out the benefits of justification by faith. That's chapter 5, 1 through 11. Those benefits, the primary one being we have peace with God. We're not under wrath. Remember verse 18, the whole section begins. We are under wrath. We are condemned. We are separate. But in Christ, and as a result of justification by faith, we have peace. We have a relationship. And that's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. So there's other benefits in there, but there's some of the benefits. And then chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, gives us the lasting foundation. And what's implied here is basically the security that we have in Christ. If you could lose your salvation, this is where you would find it in the book of Romans. You would find it at the end of chapter 5. You'd have something to the effect, okay, you better keep on growing in Christ or you're going to lose this. You don't find that at all. You have a a lasting uh, foundation that obviously is in Christ. You have this contrast between the first and the second Adam. And what the second Adam has accomplished is as secure and safe as the damage that the first Adam accomplished, etc., So there's chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. So there's your 57 verses. We can go home now. Right. Jeremy. Oh, no. (laughs) Jeremy. (laughs) Yeah, you missed the whole thing. You missed the miracle. This is what it looks like on a chart form, if you will. First eight chapters, the provision of God's righteousness. Provision of God's righteousness. We looked at the section dealing with condemnation. In other words, man is unrighteous, and there's nothing that he can do to change that. And because there's nothing he can do to change that, he stands condemned before a holy God. Condemnation. That's the section we just completed from uh, chapter 118 through 3, verse 20, condemnation. The section we're going to look at is justification by faith. That's 321 through 521. Maybe uh, Jeremy can pick up and not miss out. After this, we will look at now that we have received this right standing before God, the whole thing doesn't end right there. In fact, this is the beginning of living it out. Theologically, the Bible and Paul and other theologians use the word sanctification. Sanctification, when we get there, we'll define it in more detail, is nothing more than living out the Christian life. In other words, how do we live it out day by day? What are the principles that we need to look at? And we're going to see some parallels between living the Christian life, and what we saw in terms of our nature. That's why when we were there, I stressed the alternative, because it might be five years before we get to that portion, and I didn't want you to be wondering all those years, well, how do I live this thing out? So we looked at little snippets of it, and basically we live it in the same way we received it. We we live it by faith in what God has provided. That's the key key basic principle. If we try to live it in the same way that our natures are inclined, 
we will go into a legalistic pattern. In other words, I'm, I want to do these things to please God. Well, again, the old nature cannot do anything to please him. Remember, we're, remember the concept of total depravity? And unfortunately, we still have that nature, that depraved nature. Chapter 6 is going to stress the idea of putting it to death. Don't reform it. Don't try to improve it. Let it die. In fact, stab it in the heart. Put it to death. Chapter 7 tells you what happens when you try to live in the old nature. And Paul gives, I think, uh, there's differences of views on that chapter 7, but the view that I think is best and most biblical is Paul is laying out his own heart and what he says, the very thing that I want to do, I can't do, the very thing I hate, those are the things I do. And if you count the eyes in there, I can't remember, 22, 23, I don't remember. I, 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 I do this, I try to do that, I can't do it. What's wrong with, is the law the problem? No, the problem's not with the law. Problem is with me, my flesh, is basically what he's saying. The sin that still resides in me, that's the problem. How does he end chapter 7? He gives an image of a man carrying a dead body on his back. And this is how he's living life with this dead, stinking body on his back. And he's trying to live life, and he's hindered because of this deadness on him. Trying to carry that rather than bearing it, uh, letting it die. And then you get to chapter 8, and I think I occurs one time, and the Holy Spirit is the focus of chapter 8. The difference is living it in the power of the Holy Spirit by faith, trusting what God has provided. So that's how you live the Christian life. We haven't got there yet. That's chapter 6 through 8. So that's kind of the whole provision of God's righteousness. He's provided righteousness in terms of our standing before him, in terms of our relationship to him, but he's also provided righteousness that can be lived out moment by moment, day by day. And then he's going to deal with a particular issue in the first century. The Jew would say, well, that's good for everyone else. What about all of the promises, the covenants, the Old Testament that speaks of the nation of Israel? He's going to deal with that. And that begins in chapters 9 through 11. We'll, who knows? We'll be raptured by the time we get there. So justification by faith, just kind of a review of the outline. All of this is on your outline sheet. We have the implications, 3, 27 through 31. We have an old, the Old Testament examples, chapter 4. We have the benefits, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Here you go, Jeremy. Here's the 57 verses. And the lasting foundation, chapter 5, 12 through 21. Make sense? I hope that's helpful to put it all in context, because next week we're going to start, you know, kind of drilling down, getting down into the details, and it's easy to get lost in all of the details. This gives you a, a kind of an overall picture. I can get this chart to you if you want it as well. It'll be on the website, etc. Okay, so here we are, verse 21 through 24. Let me give you an introduction to it. And as we usually do, we try to break it down into one sentence. In other words, where does the sentence begin? Where does the sentence begin? I'll ask you. 
So where does the sentence end? Capital, uh, or capital letter, capital letter, letter and a period. Where's the period? Linda's got the capital letter. Okay. <laughs> what? Oh, there's three periods. No, 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 no. These are not three periods. These are more to come. More to come. Okay. But now, let's see if we can find it. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, comma, so then end at verse 21, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, semicolon, then in there, there is no distinction, semicolon, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, period, no, comma, Verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, semicolon, so we have more to come, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, New American Standard, period. All right, now why do I continue it? Why Why am I continuing it in uh, verse 25 and 26? Very good. Did everybody hear that? See what Connie observed there? Notice this was, is in italicized. It will be italicized in your New American Standard. And that is not in the original text. So New American Standard breaks it down into two parts. They got tired of reading, looking for a period. They said, ah, let's put one here. And that's what they did. So they have to make another sentence. So they add this was, this being the subject, was being the verb. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, etc. In the Greek text, it doesn't stop until you get to the end of verse 26. Very complicated, very difficult sentence. And we'll break it down so that we can follow it. And so we can see how it all fits together and how it tells us that God has provided righteousness through Christ and we access it by faith. It's kind of a summary of the whole thing. How do we get that? That's what we want to do. So in the Greek text, it doesn't end till you get to verse 26. This was to demonstrate... And Connie's exactly right. This was is added. That's why it's italicized to make it a sentence. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, comma, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed, semicolon, still going on, for the demonstration, and this is not in there, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, period. Get all that? Kind of complicated, right? Well, this is not unusual for Paul. This is not unusual for the letters. Peter, to some extent, does something like that as well in his letters. We have long sentences. And remember, we break it down sentence by sentence because why? By definition, one sentence is complete thought. So we don't get the complete thought until we get the whole sentence. Now, there's a lot of little parts to it, a lot of little contributions to the main thought. So what do we do next? 
Independent. independent clause. What is the independent clause? Let's go back. I think it's in here because this is. Let's go back to verse beginning verse twenty-one. What is the? In, can anyone come up with the independent clause? That whole sentence. If you can find the independent clause, and if there's just one, then that is the heart of it, and that's the essence of everything that that sentence is communicating. The essence of all that the Holy Spirit is communicating. Sorry, uh, Connie. I'm, talking over you. But if you can find it, that is the heart of it. Everything else is just telling you something about that independent clause. All right? Okay, Connie. Connie's got it again. Okay, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Anyone have a better suggestion? Linda, you're the grammarian of the group. No, you don't. You, you agree with Connie? Connie gets an A today? Just kidding. <laughs> yeah. All right. Connie gets the A. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. That's the essence of what we're talking about, the whole thing. In other words, God has revealed, and it's translated in what version you're using there? New King James uses revealed. That's a good translation. Manifested, revealed, kind of the same idea. So it has something to do with the righteousness of God. That's the essence of that whole sentence. And it has been manifested. And actually the word manifested is probably better because it has more than just something revealed. Certainly it has within it the idea of something revealed. But manifested gives you the idea that now it's kind of available. Now it's here. It's present amongst us. It's available. In other words, this righteousness is available to man who is condemned. Okay? That's the heart of the whole thing. And he's going to explain how it is manifested, how it is present, how it's available to mankind. Everything else is just contributing to that. That's the main clause. All right? So the parts, but apart from the law... He's told us that already. It's apart from the law. In other words, it's not by observing and trying to obey the law. Because if you do that, what? Yeah, it just tells you how sinful you are. Exactly. All right? So it's apart from the law. That's one of the first elements. And it's going to tell us more. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. What does that tell you? It's in the Old Testament. It's in the Old Testament. In fact, it's witnessed there. You can find it there. It's a witness. This righteousness of God, and notice it says, but now is manifested. In other words, now it's crystal clear in terms of revelation. But it's not foreign to the Old Testament. It's apart from the law, but it's not foreign to it. It's revealed there. It's manifested there. Okay, you see that? And then he's going to expand that even... And notice now again, even the righteousness of God, now he's beginning to hint, how is it manifested? How do you experience it? How do you enter into it? How? Even the righteousness of God through what? Faith in Jesus Christ. It's by trusting in Jesus Christ that we have that manifestation personally. And others can see it in you as well, and it's made visible as your life is transformed. So, through faith in Christ Jesus, and if that's not clear enough, for all those who, what? 
believe. So faith is the means by which we access it. It's apart from doing anything. It's apart from the law. It's accessed by faith for those who believe. And just kind of a reminder, semicolon, for there's no distinction. We've seen that over and over in that first section. What is he talking about there? Distinction between what? Jew and Gentile, exactly. There's no distinction. Jew has to come the same way as the Gentile. And he's just reminded us in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, there's no other way to access this. Just reminding us of the whole section that we just completed. Chapter 1, 18 through 320. Then there's a comma. Here you go. Being justified. There's your term justification. Theological term, courtroom term. We've had a whole list of courtroom terms. Whole concept of the ultimate supreme court. Here is another courtroom word. We'll define it in a moment. Being justified as a gift. You can't earn it. Notice the stress here. As a gift by his grace. We don't deserve it. There's nothing that within us, because of depravity, what we've been looking at, it's all by grace. Through, how does it come? In other words, there's a means by which it comes about. It doesn't just pop out of heaven. Even though it's a gift to us, and it's by grace, it was expensive. We're going to look at the concept of redemption. That's a Walmart term. That's a shopping center term. Has the idea of buying something at a cost. Redemption. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. He paid the cost. He paid the price. And then it goes on, whom God displayed publicly. Now it's going to talk about Jesus Christ and what he did. See how it's all flowing? See how all the parts are fitting together? It's all going back to God manifesting this righteousness. He's just telling us, how does it happen? How does it come about? How do you experience it? This is all the little details in there. So, whom God, referring to Jesus, publicly, what is that? Publicly. The cross is on the main road into Jerusalem. A public display as a, here's one of those big theological terms that we don't use very much anymore. People like to stay away from it. That's a theological term. That's a courtroom term. We'll define it. Displayed as a propitiation in his blood through faith. There's the price, his blood. It cost him his blood or his life. The life of the Son from the Father. The Son cost him his life through his blood. That's the purchase price. Propitiation is this idea of satisfaction. Going back to the courtroom, justice must be satisfied. If you're Jewish, you'd be reminded that justice required death, and since no one could pay that price, God allowed for the use of a substitute, a lamb. And when that lamb was offered, the justice of God was satisfied. That's propitiation. 
When Jesus died on the cross, God's holy justice was satisfied, was propitiated. That makes sense? Got it? We'll go into more details. We'll get to these words, give you word studies on them, etc. I'm just kind of giving you an overview here. We've already accomplished our miracle. We've already seen 57 verses. Now we got to kind of get closer and closer to the main paragraph here. Propitiation in his blood through faith. So we're reminded, we access this. We only, we can't do anything. Christ did it. Christ satisfied the justice of God. We enter into it by faith. Trusting that what he did satisfied the justice of God. And this was, now, and we've already kind of expounded that. This was, he, he's adding this because he's adding a sentence, the translators there. To demonstrate, in the Greek text, that would be a semicolon or a comma there. It would be, all of this is to demonstrate, but they break it up. That's okay. To demonstrate his righteousness. In other words, back to God is demonstrating his righteousness. He's manifesting it so that it's publicly seen. It's displayed. That righteousness is displayed. To demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, now he's going to talk about history and the past. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. That's from Adam to Jesus. Very, very important. The cross is so significant that sin was just passed over. It didn't satisfy. Those lambs didn't. The book. Remember, our studying the book of Hebrews. Lambs did not satisfy the justice of God. But God, being forbearing, in other words, patient, waiting, knowing that his son would ultimately die, he passed over sin. And he accepted the sacrifice of lambs as substitutes for payment until the ultimate sacrifice would come. See how that fits in there? In the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. Semicolon. For the demonstration, and I highlight that, and you might notice in your outline, I break it apart as well, because there's two main ideas here. There's this idea of this manifestation of justification or righteousness, and also a stress towards the end of the sentence on God publicly demonstrating or showing something. In other words, this is for God. You notice on your outline sheet, I say the first part, manifestation of righteousness, that's for man. That's what God has done in Christ for human beings, for you and I. This is what he's done for us. This demonstration, verses 25 and 26, the demonstration of righteousness, notice on your outline sheet, for God. See that? See the outline there? For God. This is God demonstrating and showing. This is public. Christianity is based on historical events. God demonstrating this righteousness. It was public. The crucifixion was public. So the stress, and it's used two times. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. And then down here, for the demonstration of his righteousness, At the present time, notice he started at the very beginning, but now, in this time frame, beginning with the crucifixion of Christ in the first century, but now, 
at the present time so that he would be just. In other words, the world will see that God is perfectly just. He judges sin. He deals with judgment. He is propitiated. He is satisfied with the death of the sinless one. That makes God just or righteous, you might even say. The word group, you know, in the Greek, words are in the same word group. God is just. He has adequately dealt with sin, and at the same time, he has made provision that we escape what we deserve. That's the grace aspect. Connie. I guess in your outline, I would rather, I would more easily understand, instead of after the righteous before you say for God, you would say by God. Yeah, it's, it's his demonstration it's, because we're the yes. idiots who need the demonstration. Yes. We're the ones who ask for yes. the No, I agree with that. Okay. But the, I use for because, in other words, it this whole, what Paul is doing is he's basically showing that God ends up just. There's no injustice in God. Everything that he's done points to God dealing with this whole issue of sin in a very just way. So he doesn't end up just. But his argument, yes. I understand the argument yeah. ends up with his justice. Right. But, but he's also saying that God started out just, yes. and here he's proving yes. his justice. Yeah. Which I still don't think for okay. God. <laughs> All right. Just saying. Okay, just saying. All right. Not only is he just... But here's the bottom line, the justifier. So he can remain just and allow totally depraved human beings in his presence. Can you imagine that? The whole concept in the Old Testament is clean and unclean and contamination and you can't touch this, you know, you can't do this, or you become unclean and you can become contaminated. God is not contaminated because he adequately dealt with sin, the price was adequately paid. So he is not only just, but now he is the justifier. He's the one that made us right to be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Notice the theme of faith throughout. That's the only way that we access it. Justification is by faith. Do we put it together adequately, do you think? Okay. This is the question, though. So it says faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus. Yeah. Was in. It's not nebulous faith. Good point. In other words, it always, biblical faith always has an object, is the point you're making. Exactly. Very good. Faith in Jesus. He's the focus. He's the one that accomplished it. Linda. When does justification happen? At the moment you're saved? At the moment that you, at the moment that you, Put your faith in Jesus. So that's that's the moment. So it's in, instantaneous. Yes, done, completed. That'll be developed later on as well. All right. So that's twenty-one through twenty-six. So not only did we do fifty-seven verses, Jeremy. But we already have Yeah. <laughs> Put the date down. <laughs> All right. So the focus. The focus is on what God has done. Not on us. It cannot be because he's already proven that there's nothing that we can do. It all is dependent on what God has done. And we are declared righteous or you might even say not guilty. Not because we're not guilty. Is that right? 
but because we have been declared not guilty. That's justification. Chapter 6 through 8, we're not righteous, we're not made righteous, we will ultimately, that's glorification. That's the process of growing in righteousness. But at this point, salvation, you might say, or justification is instantaneous. And from God's perspective, we are declared in the court of ultimate justice to be not guilty. We are The term we use today is we are acquitted. But justification includes more than just acquittal. All right? We'll talk about that. Not guilty. Notice that it is the focus on God. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, again, through faith in, in Jesus Christ. This is the work of God for all those who believe. There's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, uh, glory of God being justified as a gift by His <coughs> grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. It is his work, stressed over and over, whom God displayed publicly as propitiation in his, referring to Jesus, his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness again. Remember, we have this manifestation and demonstration because in the forbearance of God, he, God, passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness. There you go again, righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just, he's just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, we'll pick up next week. I'll I'll give you the key terms if you want them real quickly. Law, these are the key terms. Law, righteousness, law again, righteousness, justified, redemption, grace, propitiation, righteousness, righteousness, just, justifier. Key terms, law. We're going to see it's used in two ways, at least, in this paragraph or sentence. It refers to the Mosaic Covenant or the Pentateuch. We'll look at that. Righteousness, we've already defined it, a right standing before God, of which we have none until we receive his righteousness. To justify, we'll spend a lot of time defining that one, is to declare righteous, to declare. There's a positive and there's a negative. There's the forgiveness of sins, and there is the granting or the deep declaration of righteousness. That's a positive. We'll look at grace, undeserved favor. Most of you are familiar with that one already. Redemption, to buy out of slavery. These are just simple phrase definitions. We'll talk about them in more detail. Propitiation, justice, satisfied. Well, I can't leave you without giving you another chart. Here's the manifestation of righteousness apart from the law witnessed by the Old Testament. Here's how all the parts fit together in the paragraph. Four believers, verse 22 and 23, stress the word believer, the idea of faith. It's by grace. It's through Jesus Christ, what he has done. These are all the parts. And then he's demonstrating this righteousness in 25 and 26 through being satisfied, propitiation, 25, through forbearance, God patiently waiting for what he would accomplish on the cross. And he becomes the justifier, just and the justifier, verse 26. So there's the paragraph. Well, you'll see this over and over as we go through the passage. Okay?
Let's close. Who wants to close for us? Sorry, she can get longer. So your definition of justify was to, to declare righteousness. But you said really our righteousness comes until we get to end right now. Which is no, no, no. We're justified right now. Our salvation. Our complete um, salvation. Yes. Yeah, what will... Pardon me? We're declared righteous now. Yes. And the Christian life is growing in righteousness, conforming to the image of Christ. And then at the moment of resurrection, we are glorified where we are removed from these dead bodies and we are fully made righteous. Okay? A simple way of presenting the gospel message to an unbeliever. We've looked at it theologically and understood the ins and outs of it, but a simple way is just tell them there's there's bad news, and you can elaborate on that depending on how much they will allow. There's also good news that solves that bad news problem. So there's a three-part presentation of the gospel. Bad news, good news, and then uh, what are you going to do about it? That's You have to trust not in anything in yourself, trust only in what God has provided. So that's that's a simple presentation of the gospel. Aren't you close for us, Chief? All right, Father, these are lots of big things, and we understand the work of Jesus. Amen. Um, how can you set in has been that we can walk in the Holy Spirit to help us to win the battle. Pray that as we just be victorious. Amen. See you next week, Lord willing.